0: Welcome to The Royal Diaries, Unlocking History. My name is Julia. My name is Felicia. We are sisters who love books, history, and talking about them both. We're doing a deep dive into The Royal Diaries series. Come with us we learn about the girls who became women that shaped history. All right, so Kazunomiya. Prisoner of Heaven, Japan, 1858, by Catherine Lasky. The summary reads, Princess Kazanomiya, half-sister of the Emperor of Japan, relates in her diary and in poems the confusing events occurring in the Imperial Palace in 1858, including political and romantic intrigue. As usual, we can't really get to anything before I ask you the most important question. What did you think of the book? Do you remember reading the
1: book? I didn't read this one. And you know what it is? I bet I would have read it if I was one of those people who is captivated by Japan. You'll meet them and all of a sudden they're just like, I love Japan. Everything about Japan and they just want to consume all the media, all the content, all the history. They're the people who like end up correcting actual people from Japan about things about Japan. And I'm just,
0: oh. So
1: you mean anime convention
0: attenders-esque?
1: But because of that, when I was going to read this, I almost felt, oh no, I don't have enough personal understanding background. Will I understand and connect with this book?
0: I just want to go and point (laughs) out to people that she is a person who has a poster of Shishomaru from Inuyasha still hanging in her wardrobe. This is not taking place in feudal Japan. So what was actually
1: very surprising for myself was oh, I actually know what that means. And, oh, I do know about this poem about the genie and how it was the first novel written. I do know about the whole blackening of teeth. I do know what a yukata is and things like that. So I was very proud of myself. Who wrote this? And then it's Catherine Lasky strikes again. Oh, you went on a trip to Japan and therefore I know everything about Japaning it now. And so I felt ashamed that I understand so much. Look at me. Go me. And then they realized, wow, the bar is so low for my understanding. But regardless, this book wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Yeah. I felt her as a character because she is quote unquote trapped and she can't really do A lot, Her inner life and her sort of what's going on internally was really nicely fleshed out. It was harder to nail down her as a character person, though, because at first it was like, ah, yeah, she's even though certain rules have been put on me and they've changed my birthday. I'm actually born in the fire horse and I'm a badass. And I was like, yeah, I like this subversive girl. And then she kind of weirdly turns kind of a ninny between
0: I like this boy. But do I like this boy? But I like this boy. And I'm just,
1: no, you were cool. What Don't happened? you know that girls
0: always have to go on like boys? So Felicia, and that becomes our defining traits as women. Well. Is our relationship to men. Well, and even her reasoning,
1: rationaling to like these boys wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like she had a strong quote unquote friendship. Because that was the whole thing, too. She had an adventure
0: intrigue with Yoshi. Yoshi is the shogunate. Yeah. Or the shogun. Yeah, be. yeah. But they had like that intriguing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Like basically wreck the Dowager
1: Empress's Empress's nefarious plot. Like they had a vibe then and he makes her a little fire bug basket. And then she's also having her secret meetings with her husband to be, but that marriage is going to be canceled. So she's, oh, I'm vibing with him. And I'm just like...
0: (sighs) In fairness, though, she couldn't really do much. Yeah, I know. So
1: I understand where basically if you're a teen and you don't have a car and you're trapped in the suburbs, you have a lot of internal crap that you get up to. And this is like pre-internet her. So just I grew up pre-internet with no car. Mm -hmm. I understand the weird suburban confines of living in your own head having crushes and a bunch of other stuff where things are wildly blown out of proportion and whatever.
0: 100%. Everything is extra.
1: Yeah. When you have really nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. So I appreciated the little poems peppered throughout it. Some are really pretty. Yeah. I mean, would I, I stand No. Mm -hmm. If you're like into Japan, you'll probably be bored. I know more than this book. Yeah. And if I don't know too much about Japan. I hope I'm not being kept away from vital information. Don't worry, you probably know more than you think, so mm-hmm. you could probably read this book and enjoy it.
0: Yeah. That's pretty much that. Yeah, I mean, there isn't really much plot going on. Glaski learned her mistake from Mary, Queen of Scots, where it's a, we have this building up towards this whole, like, Holy Communion confirmation whatever the frick Mary, Queen of Scots is doing, and then it sort of is like, this goes nowhere. There was a bunch of intrigue, but again, like, these plots, either like they start and they fizzle out. Well, there's a lot of history there. And then also... I know that we shat on that book like to a certain extent, but Lawrence Yip really went like, hard with Lady Xi'an. I do not have that much about this woman, but I am going to go to town. There's going to be plot. There's going to be progression. Everything. Yeah, lots of intrigue, lots of stuff. I mean, the most intriguing
1: thing that happens, the Darger Empress trying to like set up the current emperor's favorite or there was a the whole thing of them trying to
0: co-op like her co- chief blackening, blackening ceremony, ceremony, which is
1: a rite of passage, which at least we got to see and at least they did do that whole thing where they said aha you know this is supposed to be ceremonially for her mother so we're not gonna let that be taken from her etc so there's something there but for me her waffling between am i a jacob or an edward Mm -hmm. fan (laughs) twilighting it just it bothered me that's all i have to say fair enough she didn't have enough relationship with either one of these people to spend so much time with it
0: So I guess we could just sort of jump in, as we've sort of been alluding to, there wasn't a lot on her specifically. And when I was thinking about this episode in terms of how do we want to go and frame it, one of the things that is how do things change, but then how do things not change too at the same time? So I'm going to read from an article. It's a little bit longish, but you'll see where we're going with this. Worldwide media coverage of one-time Japanese Princess Mako's so-called royal wedding has it backward. Mako's Spartan civil ceremony, naked of pomp and circumstance, marks a reverse storybook transformation from Princess Mako into the commoner Mrs. Mako Komoro. She's taken her husband's family name and his status, and Japan's imperial family, rather than gaining a son, has lost a daughter. Thus, the creation of Mrs. Mako Komoro is the opposite of a royal wedding, and that. the marriage killed the royal in her, or, to be more precise, the law governing Mako's marriage killed the feminine royal. Mako's fate was sealed long before her birth, but not by timeless Japanese custom. In fact, it was legal reforms initiated under U.S. military occupation after World War II that shut the door to Mako and other imperial women's claims to lifelong royalty. Japan's post-war constitution guarantees the equality of the sexes and equal rights of husband and wife, But explicit constitutional guarantees of equality between the sexes and within marriage do not apply to Japan's imperial household, which is governed by a unique body of law, imperial household law, enforced since 1947, and decrees imperial daughters, like Mako, are ineligible to succeed to the throne. It also decrees that, upon marriage to husbands outside the imperial family, imperial daughters, mothers, and widows are to be demoted to their husband's status. Meanwhile, marriage within the imperial family Family is impossible, as it would entail marrying a brother or uncle. Yet, the tiny pool of marriageable men of royal status is a direct result of generations of severing from the family tree, the branches like that of Mako and all the descendants of imperial daughters making the Imperial family's problem worse with the marriage of, of the former princess to her long-time beau, Kei which, by the way, ponytail K, okay, short hair K, okay, doesn't matter what he looks like, God bless. What an attractive couple.
1: I'm sorry, but the look that they were giving each other when they were like, this is happening, it was fire.
0: Yeah. I was like, I
1: should not be looking at this photo.
0: If you'd been reunited with the love of your life after three years, it'd be really hard to contain yourself, I think. There's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of Attention. I'm here for it. Yeah, but the population of Japan's royal family shrinks to an unprecedented low. The morning of Mako's marriage, Japan's imperial family had 18 members. That evening, it numbered 17. If and when Princess Kakako, Mako's younger sister, chooses to marry, it will number 16. And that's assuming no older relatives, such as 85-year-old Prince Hitachi, have died by then, depleting the ranks even further. Though rich in women, the imperial family is nearly bereft of men of reproductive age. So small is this family and so rigid its rules for membership that should Mako and Kako's younger brother, 15-year-old Isahito, fail to produce a male heir, the Japanese royal line will die with him. Damn. I know. Hypothetically, Kako can remain unmarried and a princess. She could even scandalize her country by choosing single motherhood. An unmarried royal mother would bear children with no legal father, and therefore no legal family other than the imperial house. Even in this unlikely situation, Princess Mother Kako cannot produce heirs to which will someday be her brother's throne. Imperial household law recognizes only male heirs descended in the male line. Women born into the imperial family are legally unable to reproduce it. Japan's current imperial household law dates to 1947, the same year Japan adopted a constitution barring sexual discrimination and promising equality in marriage. A mere two years after the defeat in World War II, Japan was undergoing sweeping democratic reforms under U.S. occupation. Oddly, U.S. occupiers did not insist on conforming imperial household law to the constitution they helped impose. This exception in favor of patriarchy may yet doom the imperial institution that American occupiers empire set out to preserve. Most Japanese support a more inclusive vision of the imperial house. About 80% endorse putting a woman on the throne. Nearly as many support keeping the descendants of the princesses in line of succession. But defenders of the status quo frame the current law of succession as Japanese tradition. This, despite the fact that the all-male imperial bloodline is a distinctly modern phenomenon with American fingerprints all over it. Absent American cooperation, the discrimination that forms the core of the imperial household law would never have made it onto the books. U.S. occupiers, themselves mainly men in uniform, traded gender inequality in Japan's imperial house for cooperation from conservatives on other matters. Japan's imperial line, touted as the oldest in the world, is withering under the stultifying effects of everyday sexism. Everyday sexism as a form of global currency. Why do you think I might have led with Mako?
1: Even though we think things have changed and look how far we've come, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, some things, like the patriarchy, stay the same.
0: That's part of it. I actually found an interview with Catherine Lasky, Mm. and she was asked, Throughout her diary, Kazunomiya writes that she feels like a pawn. From the constant changing of her birthday to the political importance of her arranged marriage, it is certainly understandable that she feels like a chess piece. Because of this, do you think her life was unhappy? Catherine Lasky responds with, well, I think by her standards, it was no more or less happy than other royal princesses. It is not a happy lot being a princess in any country, but especially Japan, in which every tiny aspect of one's life is governed by the most rigid rules of protocol. Even the present-day princess of Japan, now Empress Masako, has been reported to be suffering because of the pressure to produce a male heir. Her life is so constrained, and this is a Japanese young woman who went to high school in a suburb of Boston and was a cheerleader, leader and then continued on to Harvard for her studies. She came from an environment of total freedom and intellectual challenge. Her life has changed drastically and it is a burden. Surprisingly, there is doesn't seem to be that much difference between a princess in the 19th century and one in the 21st century or one at the end of the 20th century. And the same misogynistic bullshit, it still applies to total control, the lack of freedom and agency, unless you actively remove yourself from the situation. We're not big fans of cultural relativism in terms of that's just like what they do over there. And we need to be understand no, like if something's bullshit, it's bullshit, no matter who you are, and like what's happening. But it's also just Just going and seeing how these types of principles keep on paying forward, but also how the cause of them in some ways ends up being a more similar source than you'd think. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, we'll get to it. So, what I thought I would go and do is just read you a very short bio of our girl, and then we're going to go and take a step back. We're going to go and talk about the period in which she was living, what was happening, the political turmoil, and then wrap it and we'll circle all the way back. She was born in 1846. She was the wife of the 14th shogun, Emochi Tokugawa. By the way, as usual, I'm doing my best with the names and the pronunciation. She was the 8th-born princess of Emperor Ninko, Imperial Princess Chikako, which was her birth name. Her betrothal to the Imperial Prince, Taruhito Prince Arasugawa, was annulled, and she was sent to marry Emochi for a reconciliation between the Imperial court and the shogunate, which was being prompted by her her brother Komei and Tomo Iwakura, who was basically the main influencer of the Shogunate at that point. Although she overcame a few tensho-ing in the inner palace by the mediation of Imochi, her husband died at Osaka Castle four years later in the second Koshu punitive expedition. So he didn't live to be super old, and their marriage was cut short. They did not have any children either. After his death, she became a nun and called herself Seikan in no Maya, and In the Boshin War, she showed her support to the shogunate government by pleading to spare the life of Yoshinobu Tokugawa. She died at the age of 31. Uh, Yeah, most likely a thiamine or vitamin B1 deficiency. Yeah,
1: I'm officially older than this lady.
0: I know, I'm going to be older than this lady pretty soon too. And she was well known for her poetry. That is the short form bio of this woman. Because while we don't exactly have a handful of lines here and there for her, her most significant thing was that she married this guy. The marriage never actually ended up living up to the political promise it was supposed to. And then she died young.
1: Yeah, that's pretty
0: much it. Probably like within that pair. paragraph, there was a... What is that? What is a Shogunate? When you go and you talk about the Boshin War. Well, we're going to go and get into that. All but right. first... We need to go and talk about what the Edo period is. So the Edo period was between 1603 and 1867, and that was when Japan was under the rule of the Tokugawa Shogunate and the country's 300 regional daimo, emerging from the chaos of the Sengoku period. Which is when Inuyasha is set. Exactly. That's why I don't know anything. The Edo (laughs) period... (laughs) <laughs> the Edo period was characterized by economic growth, strict social order, isolationist foreign policies, a stable population, a pretty, like, consistent peace, and popular enjoyments of arts and culture. The shogunate was officially established in Edo, now known as Tokyo, and that's where it gets its name from, on March 24th, 1603. Wasn't that, like, only a couple days, like, around when Elizabeth I died? Yes. That's wild to me. By Tokigawa Ieyasu, the period came to an end with the Meiji Restoration on May 3, 1868, after the fall of Edo. The Tokugawa or Edo period brought about 250 years of stability to Japan. The political system evolved into what historians now call the Baku Han, a combination of the terms Bakufu and Han or domains to describe the government and society of the period. In the Bakuhan, the shogun had national authority and the daimo had regional authority. This represented a new unity in the feudal structure, which featured an increasingly large bureaucracy to administer the mixture of centralized and decentralized authorities. The Tokugawa became more powerful during the first century of rule. Land redistribution gave them nearly 7 million koku, controlling the most important cities, and a land assessment system reaping great revenues. Of course. The feudal hierarchy was completed by various classes of daimo. Closest to the Tokugawa house were the shinpan, or related, houses. They were 23 daimo on the borders of the Tokugawa lands, all directly related to Iyasu, so the first shogunate. The shinpan held mostly honorary titles and advisory posts in the bakufu. The second class of the hierarchy were the feudal, or house daimo, rewarded with lands close to the Tokugawa holdings for their faithful service. Kind of like knights. Sort of. Like, the feudal system in many ways is not that different no matter where you go. Where you slice it. By the 18th century, 145 feudai controlled much smaller Han, the greatest assessed at 250,000 koku. Members of the feudai class staffed most of the major bakufu offices. 97 Han formed the third group, the Tozama, so the outsider external vassals, former opponents or new allies. The Tozama were located mostly on the peripheries of the archipelago and collectively controlled nearly 10 million Kokua of productive land. Because the Tozama were least trusted by the Daimo, they were the most cautiously managed and generously treated, although they were excluded from central government positions. The shogunate not only consolidated their control over reunified Japan, they also had unprecedented power over the emperor, the court, all Daimo, and the religious orders. This is the main thing, right? The emperor was held up as the ultimate source of political sanctions for the shogun, who ostensibly was the vassal to the imperial family. I'm not technically in charge, I'm just your vassal, but really, like, we all know. Yeah,
1: kind of like how when any of those movies where Mr. President, I'm the general, and I say we have to go to war, and you're thinking, aren't you a general? I know you're supposed to advise the president, but it sounds like you're calling a lot of the shots here.
0: Yes. The shogun also helped the imperial family recapture its old glory by rebuilding its various palaces and granting it new lands. To ensure, I know, to how generous. I know, right? Like, <laughs> well, oh, we burned down your house. Let us rebuild it. Yeah. To ensure close ties between the imperial family and the Tokugawa family, Iyashu's granddaughter was made imperial consort in 1619. There was a code of laws that was established to regulate the daimyo houses. The code encompassed private conduct, marriage, dress, types of weapons, and numbers of troops allowed, required feudal lords to reside in Edo every other year, prohibited the construction of of ocean-going ships, Christianity, restricted castles to one per domain, and stipulated that the Bakufu regulations were the national law. Although the Daimo were not taxed per se, they were regularly levied for contributions for military and logistical support and for such public works projects such as castles, roads, bridges, and palaces. The various regulations and levies not only strengthened the Tokugawa Shogun, but also depleted the wealth of the Daimo, thus weakening their threat to the central administration. Administration. The Han, once military-centered domains, became merely local administrative units. The daimyo did have full administrative control over their territory and their complex systems of retainers, bureaucrats, and commoners. Loyalty was guaranteed from religious foundations, already greatly weakened by the Nobunaga and the Hidoyishi, through a variety of control mechanisms. Basically, it wasn't just like a, I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch my back. It was a, I will go and extort you for money or or I will kill you type of mechanism. Yeah, but I'll make it sound like it's a great deal. Exactly. During the Edo period, the social order based on inherited position rather than personal merits was rigid and highly formalized. Well, you know Felicia doesn't like that. Only merit here. Exactly. At the top were the emperor and court nobles, together with the shogun and the daimo. Below them, the population was divided into four classes in a system known as mibusei. The samurai on top, about 5% of the population, and the peasants, more than 80% of the population on the second level. Below the peasants were the craftsmen, and even below them, on the fourth level, were the merchants. Wow. I know. Only the peasants lived in rural areas. Samurai craftsmen and merchants lived in the cities that were built around Daimo castles, each restricted to their own quarter. So I want to show you this very helpful pyramid that I found that explains things better. So what are you seeing? (laughs) Why are you laughing? I'm just laughing because,
1: like, when we're thinking about, you know, not much changes, look at who's being, quote-unquote, deemed as essential workers, i.e., the lowest of the low. Salespeople. Yes. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, uh from the bottom to the top it's salespeople, craftspeople, farmers, fishermen, paid soldiers, warriors, so the samurai, nobles, the daimos political leaders, the shogun, and then the emperor, the figurehead. Yes. So the warrior class, 90% of the population, like you were saying, the peasants and then the lowest is the merchants. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. You would think that the merchants would be a little bit higher up, but I guess maybe because they weren't allowed to accumulate personal
0: wealth. Personal wealth, and then also going think about in a feudal society where does the majority of your money actually come from? Food
1: production. True, true. What are you selling, I guess, yes. is the question.
0: I'm not an expert in, you know, period economic. Could be a very wrong answer. And correct me if I am wrong. Explain to me why the, the merchants and the sales are the lowest. It's like no solicitors. Yes. So, but also, along with this very strict social order and economic system, let's go and break down the cultural. A little bit. The religion. Yes philosophy because they're one and the same at this point. There was a flourishing of Neo-Confucianism, and that was the major intellectual development of the Edo period. Confucian studies had long been kept active in Japan by Buddhist clerics, but during the Edo period, Confucianism emerged from Buddhist religious control. This system of thought increased attention in to a secular view of man and society. The ethical humanism, rationalism, and historical perspective of the Neo-Confucian doctrine appealed to the official class. By the mid-17th century, Neo-Confucianism was Japan's dominant legal philosophy and contributed directly to the development of the Kokugaku, Gaku, the National Learning School of Thought. Advanced studies and growing applications of Neo-Confucianism contributed to the transition of the social and political order from feudal norms to class and large group oriented practices. The rule of the people, or Confucian man, was gradually replaced by the rule of law. New laws were developed and new administrative devices were instituted. A new theory of government and a new vision of society emerged as a means of justifying more comprehensive governance by the Bakufu. People in power are going to go and use whatever mode of thinking they can to go and justify their accumulation of power.
1: Yeah, and if people are off sort of doing their own personal homespun religious practices, that doesn't really work when I'm trying to get everybody on the same page to give their taxes or their military service at the same time.
0: Especially because at the basis of Confucianism is the idea that each person has a distinct place in society and was expected to work to fulfill his or her mission in life. The people were to be ruled with benevolence by those whose assigned duty it was to rule. Government was all-powerful, but responsible and humane. Sure. (laughs) Although the class system was influenced by Confucianism, it was not identical to it. Whereas soldiers and clergy were at the bottom of the hierarchy in the Chinese model. In Japan, some members of these classes constituted the ruling elite. Members of the samurai class adhered to the bushai traditions with a renewed interest in Japanese history and cultivation of the ways of Confucian scholar administrators. It's kind of funny, they're almost going their
1: own cultural political
0: renaissance. Oh yeah. Saying it's like a golden age of Japan, but this is really when things that we know as Japanese Japan, Japan is like formed. Like it's you know like, like that great wave painting that everybody buys a poster of and pins on their wall. Yes. And I can think of like four people I know who have it on their wall right now. Yeah, but do you have the Mount Fuji one? I do not have the Mount Fuji one, but I know someone who has the Mount Fuji one and that one too. Yeah. So those type of things. Yeah. That type of stuff. That distinctive style look, Mm -hmm. etc. A distinct culture known as Chonido, the way of the townspeople, emerged in cities such as Osaka, Kyoto, and Edo, which again is contemporary Tokyo. The system. Encourage aspiration to Bushido qualities, diligence, honesty, honor, loyalty, and frugality, while blending Shinto, Neo-Confucian, and Buddhist beliefs. Study of mathematics, astronomy, cartography, engineering, and medicine were also encouraged. Emphasis was placed on quality of workmanship, especially in the arts. Buddhism and Shintoism were also important in the Edo period. Buddhism, together with Neo-Confucianism, provided a standard of social behavior. Although Buddhism was not as politically powerful as a had been in the past, Buddhism continued to be espoused by the upper classes. Prescriptions against Christianity benefited Buddhism in 1640 when the Ba'kafu ordered everyone to register at a temple. The rigid separation of Edo society into Han villages, wards, and households helped reaffirm local Shinto attachments as well. Shinto provided spiritual support to the political order and was an important tie between the individual and the community. Shinto also help preserve a sense of national identity. What do you know about Shintoism? Can you give a brief two-sentence summary of it? Folklore, mythological, originy type of, and it is from
1: Japan. Whereas Mm -hmm. Buddhism is originally from, is like India, then it goes to China, then it goes to Korea, then it comes to Japan. Mm -hmm. Shinto is from Japan. It's uh, more quote-unquote homespun in that way. Everything is ritualized. But other than that, I told you, it's just like Inuasha. Kikyo is a into a priestess
0: (laughs) yeah and the whole thing is a set of kami so spirits or many gods and it's not like animism this box actually is the thing itself but no it can contain the spirit of something separate yes and spiritual
1: possession is a thing
0: pretty much at least from my very high level reading of it could be completely wrong i don't think though
1: there are spirits and whether or not they are malevolent or benevolent, it really depends. It's yeah. not as clear cut. You gotta look out for the spirits.
0: And then the second thing is that if you are interested, and in, this is just a general plug for Martin Scorsese's best film since Goodfellas, Silence, based off of Endo's novel of the same name. I love it. It's great. Highly recommend it. What's Christianity like in Japan during the Edo period? Well, you can follow with Father Rodriguez as he learns that he has to go out and blaspheme Christ to go and actually embody his principles. It's amazing! It's a little dark. It's great. Fills me with joy. It's true. Anyways, back to Shintoism. Yes. So Shinto eventually assumed an intellectual form as shaped by rationalism and materialism. The Kokugaku movement emerged from the interactions of these two belief systems. Kokugaku contributed to the emperor-centered nationalism of modern Japan and the revival of Shinto as the national creed in the 18th and 19th centuries. The Kojiki, Nihon, Soku, and the Manyoshu were all studied anew in the search of the Japanese spirit. Some purists of the Koku Gaku movement, such as Mutori Norinaga, even criticized the Confucian and Buddhist influences, in effect foreign influences, i.e. Right, what's pure Japan, Yeah, for contaminating Japan's ancient ways. Japan was the land of Kami, and as such, it had a special destiny arts and culture. Due to the end of the period of Civil War and the development of the economy, many crafts with high artistic value were produced. Among the samurai class, arms came to be treated like works of art, so, again, like Japanese sword making goes to a new level, Japanese sword mountings and Japanese armor, beautifully decorated with lacquer of makii technique, and metal carvings became popular. Each han encouraged the production of crafts to improve their finances, and the crafts, such as furnishing and intricately laid and beautifully decorated with lacquer, metal, or ivory, became popular among the rich. The Kaga domain, which was ruled by the Maeda clan, was especially enthusiastic about promoting crafts, and the area still boasts a reputation that surpasses Kyoto and crafts even to today. Good to know. For the first time, urban populations had the means and the leisure time to support a new mass culture. Ah, here we are. Yep. Their search for enjoyment became known as the Yukio, or the floating world, an ideal world of fashion, popular entertainment, and a discovery of aesthetic qualities and objects and actions of everyday life
1: this is what i aspire to do slash if i have to time travel i'm going here
0: you're going to go here? Okay. Yeah. This increasing interest in pursuing recreational activities helped to develop an array of new industries, many that would be found in areas known as Yoshiwara. This district was known for being the center of Edo's developing sense of elegance and refinement. It was established in 1617 as the city's shogunate sanctioned prostitution district, and it kept the designation for 250 years. Yoshiwara was home to mostly women who, due to their various circumstances found themselves working in the secluded environment. Professional female entertainers, geisha, music, popular stories, kabuki theater, baranku, so puppet theater, poetry, a rich literary scene, art exemplified by beautiful woodblock prints, were all part of this flowering culture in this specific space. The literature that was flourishing at this time included playwrights, poets and essayists, and travel writers. The Edo period was basically characterized by an unprecedented series of economic developments and cultural maturation in terms of these various areas. For example, a poetic meter used for music called Kinsei kotak choi was invented during this time, and it's still being utilized today. Music and theater were influenced by the social gap between the noble and the commoner classes, and different arts became more defined as this gap widened. Several different types of kabuki emerged. Some, such as Shibaraku, were only available at certain times each year, while some companies only performed for nobles. Fashion trends, the satirization of local news stories and advertisements were often part of kabuki theater as well. And at this time, we have the development of the most popular sport, sumo wrestling. At this point, too, eating out became popular because of the intense urbanization. It was particularly popular among ordinary people for stalls that served fast food. The classics of, like, Japanese cuisine get to go and get codified at this point. Sasoba, sushi, tempura, unagi. stuff talking about the food i'm so hungry i'm just imagining
1: going up to a little stall and getting a ramen bowl
0: i know right <sighs> gently
1: raining but don't worry because the soup's so warm and you're like underneath a little little stall
0: and then i got my little woolly kind of coat it's cold but i have my suit mm-hmm. so good yeah let's just like take a let's moment let's just be cozy let's right just... now this is real cozy folks fantasizing and okay. there's like gentle bells in the rain too and you think, wow, what a beautiful evening in the rain with my big and Yeah, exactly. Okay. Back to <laughs> Okay, exactly. that was fun. I know. Man, I want to go. Oh, I need to do that. We need to do that, man. We just did that space travel thing. Yes. I was really happy to do it with you. Thank you. All right. Gardening also became incredibly popular at this time. Sold. Ah, yeah, especially in Edo, residents of the Daimo, where each domain were gathered and many gardeners existed to manage these gardeners. Because remember, they all had to go and come to town every other year. This is also, again, where Ikebana, Cherry Blossom Gardens, the Tea Gardens, all of that gets codified and formalized. Yeah, with the moon gates and
1: Mm -hmm. doing bonsai, probably. Yes. All that stuff
0: traveling also became popular because of the improvement of roads and other like smaller post towns in between like the larger cities one thing I have to go and say they were taking the money from you but at least they were building some infrastructure well I mean and because they're
1: limiting themselves to international influence and trade etc abroad mm-hmm. they're really just getting to recycle whatever money instead of just sitting it on themselves Yeah, they're investing it back into the country mm-hmm. which is fine
0: yeah main Destinations were famous temples and Shinto shrines. People would also go and enjoyed eating and drinking at the inns. The main attraction, the most popular place to visit, was the Grand Shrine at the base of Mount Fuji, along with the summit of Mount Fuji itself, which were considered to be the most sacred places in Japan.
1: I feel like not much has changed. I feel like that's still the destination that everybody is going to. It's not just international travelers, but I feel like even people in Japan are just we're gonna go to Mount Fuji.
0: Yeah. At least once. Exactly. That was basically what life was like in the Edo period. Good food, good music,
1: good gardening, good clothes. Sounds pretty good. Uh. I if, if you're at a certain level, obviously. Oh yeah,
0: obviously. Like being a peasant would still freaking suck. No, being a salesperson would it apparently suck. suck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll be a peasant. At least you know I'm somewhat up on the ring.
0: Exactly. <laughs> on the rungs. It's like I at least get to sit in a chair, unlike you. You have to stand all day. Let's go and talk a bit more about the political system. So what was the shogunate? The Japanese bakufu, or the shogunaku, or the government of the shogun, or the hereditary military dictator of Japan, was basically the system from 1192 to 1867. You have the emperor on top figurehead at this point. You have the shogunate and then you have the daimo. That is what makes up the bakufu. So the tip top of the pyramid. Exactly. The term shogun appeared in various titles given to military commanders commissioned for the imperial government's 8th and ninth century campaigns against the Izo, the Mishi tribes of northern Japan. Japan was not always like a one unified country. Mm-hmm. It's very mountainous. It's big too as well, relatively speaking. So you had different tribes and different groups. And then the shogun is basically your military leader to go and unite us, conquer them. Bring us all together. Like the Napoleon to your Italy. Pretty much. The highest warrior rank, the Seita Tashogun, was the first attained by Sakuno Tamura Maro, and the title, abbreviated as Shogun, was later applied to all shogunate leaders. Legally, the shogunate was under the control of the emperor, and the shogun's authority was limited to control of the military forces of the country. But the increasingly feudal character of Japanese society created a situation in which control of the military became tantamount to control of the country. But doesn't it always mean that? Today, if you control the army... You control a lot
1: more in any sort of action movie where they're just like, all we have to do is get the army on our side, then we can overtake. Blah blah blah.
0: Or you know, we could just reject militarism and get rid of all armies, but don't mind me. I know. Yeah. (laughs) And the emperor remained in his palace at Kyoto, chiefly as a symbol of sovereignty behind the shogun. All right. So the samurai leader Minamoto Yoritomo gained military hegemony over Japan in 1185. Seven years later, he assumed the title of shogun and established the first shogunate, or bakufu. That means translates as tent government. Eventually, the Kamakura shogunate came to possess military, administrative, and judicial functions, although the imperial government remained the recognized legal authority. The shogunate appointed its own military governors, or shugo, as heads of each province, and named stewards to supervise the individual estates into which the province had been divided, thus establishing the ineffective national network. Those stewards? The daimo. After the collapse of the Kamakura Shogunate in 1333, Ashikaga Takuji established a second line of shogunai succession and ruled much of Japan from 1338 until 1573. The Ashikaga Shogunate's capital was the imperial city of Kyoto, but the increasingly independent Shugo virtual warlords who in the 16th century were known as Daimo eventually undermined the power of the Ashikaga Shogunate. In 1600, Tokugawa Ayushu gained hegemony over the Daimo and thus was able to reestablish in 1603 the third shogunate headquartered in Edo. The Edo shogunate was the most powerful central government Japan had yet seen. It controlled the emperor, the Daimo, the religious establishment, administered the Tokugawa lands, and handled Japanese foreign affairs. That's how we got there politically.
1: So despite her being this half sister or sister to the emperor it means nothing it means really nothing it's just kind of like giving someone a complimentary title because you know you're just being nice to them but they can't actually hire and fire anybody exactly it's like you're the vp the vp of what
0: the vp yeah executive vice president and it's like (laughs) wait what exactly (laughs) mr blitzstone what are you doing i'm an executive i'm embezzling yeah exactly but you might have noticed wait but there was an end to the Edo period how did we get there Mm -hmm. so let's go and now turn to the decline and also kind of work for some of the other major players too well nothing lasts forever exactly so again, her husband, Emochi, was the eldest son of the 11th generation Wakayama Domain Lord, Tokugawa Nariyuki. And Nariyuki was the younger son of the 11th shogun, Tokugawa Inari. In 1847, at the age of 1, he was adopted as the heir of the 12th daimyo Tokugawa Narikatsu and succeeded him in 1850, taking the name Tokugawa Yoshitomi following his coming of age in 1851. In 1858, he had an audience with the shogun Isada and his wife, Atushimi. Shortly after, he was adopted as their son and named the successor to the main Tokugawa house.
1: Is this because they couldn't have bio kids? Or they could not have
0: bio kids. Is this
1: because they've, like, limited their gene pool so much?
0: We can talk about that in a moment. All right. <laughs> uh, the choice of Tomo was not without conflict. There were other factions in the government who supported Tokigawa Yoshinobu or Matsudaria Naritami for Shogun. Both of them, unlike Yoshi, were adults. And after assuming the office of shogun, Yoshitomi changed his name to Emochi. Unfortunately, he died at the age of 20. Oh dear. But before he died, he did, he adopted a son, Teasu Kemenosuke, as his heir, because he and our girl did not have children. Yes. At that time, the boy was only three years old. Why do they keep adopting, like, littles? I, I would adopt a grown-up. I know. I mean, like, <laughs> like this will, is my I son. Mean, like, he's forty-five. <laughs> I mean, like will, exactly. But as a Tokigawa shogunate was at war with the Choshu Yoshinobu, so the previous guy here, they're like, "Why don't we make him the heir?" Because he's a freaking adult. Was appointed as the fifteenth shogun. Shogun Yoshinobu then adopted Emochi's adopted son, and the cause of Emochi's death was widely reported to be heart failure due to beriberi, Berry disease caused by a thiamine deficiency. B1. Yeah. Same thing as her. Mm. It's a lot of deficiencies here. He was not the first Shogun to die young or to die young recently. His adoptive father was considered to be a weak ruler and not just because of his policies, but also he was frail too and he died at 34. Oh dear. Now we're going to go and take a brief discussion of thymine deficiency or B1 deficiency. So basically when you have... I know I've heard Barry Barry before
1: because it sounds funny and it sticks in my head, but I generally don't know nothing. I know I should probably be taking more B12.
0: Yeah, everybody needs to go and take more B12. I need to take more B12. But that's not the point. Sorry, tangent. So it's all good. But pretty much what a thiamine deficiency is, so it can either go and be hereditary or it can also be because of diet. And one of the key things about how you get B1 is that you have whole grains, Ah. And one of the things that has happened recently, and this is just my theory. I have not read this in any historical document, but something that made me go and think is, huh, I was reading about how they wanted to they, change like, their rice production. So suddenly they were removing the husk from the rice and just having the plain white rice. And suddenly when the majority of your diet loses its main source of whole grain and B1, Mm. and also you have an increase in alcohol intake, especially in the upper classes, Mm. this might be a sign of something. If you have a predisposition for
1: certain deficiencies, your diet can definitely exacerbate them. There's never just one smoking gun.
0: Oh, no. It's it, like the smoking gun and the dagger as well. But it's in the same way that having like an overconsumption of tea or raw fish and shellfish creates an enzyme that destroys spiamine. I'm not saying it was just their diet. It did not help the situation. I think especially because he died of it and she died of it. And it seems like a bunch of other people died really young and poor health. Was, hmm. He had heart failure. What's the thing that happens when you have thiamine deficiency, heart failure, mm. stunted growth? You don't have enough energy, a bunch of stuff.
1: Yeah, like diseases of the upper classes. Yeah, like ha- gout. Like gout and stuff. How they? It's because of their diet and their lifestyle uh-huh. combined. They don't realize that their quote-unquote best life is actually slowly killing them.
0: Pretty much. That was our thiamine side tangent thing but it was something that i really want to bring up medical mystery medical mystery in general fam invest in getting yourself a multivitamin and getting some blood work done make yeah. sure you get whole grains y'all
1: yeah whole if grains you can.
0: yeah if you can take, take care of your health lots of
1: water b12 <laughs> exactly
0: but anyway so after his death in 1866 Yoshinobu had ascended to the Shogun, he was the only Tokugawa Shogun to spend his entire tenure outside of Edo. He never actually stepped foot inside of Edo Castle, which might be a sign that he was not in power for very long. Immediately upon his ascension as Shogun, major changes were initiated. A massive government overhaul was undertaken to initiate reforms that would strengthen the Tokugawa government. In particular, assistance from the Second French Empire was organized with the construction of the Yokosaka Arsenal under Léon's Vernet and the dispatch of the French military mission to modernize the armies of the Bakufu. The National Army and Navy, which had already been formed under the Tokugawa Command, were strengthened by the assistance also by the Russians and the tracing mission provided by the British Royal Navy. Equipment was also purchased from the United States. The outlook among many was that the Tokugawa Shogunate was gaining ground towards a renewed strength and power, however, if all fell apart in less than a year. So how did it fall? Well, now we're going to turn to the Boshin War. So that initial, like, what the frick was that? Yeah, what's that war? This period is also known as the Bakumatsu or the end of the Bakufu. Like any end of an era, there's always more than the one thing. First one is there were earthquakes. Between 1854 and 1855, there was a dramatic series of earthquakes known as the Nansai Great Earthquakes, of 120 major and minor tremors recorded over less than a two-year period, including the 8.4 magnitude in 1854 Tokaian earthquake on the 23rd of December, 1854, and the 8.4 magnitude 1854 Nankai earthquake occurring the following day, and the 6.9 magnitude 1855 Edo earthquake on the 11th of November, 1855. This is
1: when I'm getting into the TARDIS and I'm piecing out of here. I'm the shim- like, thank you Japan. It was wonderful to visit.
0: Bye. The Shimoda on the Izu Peninsula was struck by the Tokai earthquake, and there was a subsequent tsunami afterwards. And because the port had just been designated as a prospective location for a U.S. consulate, some of the natural disasters as a demonstration of the displeasement of the gods.
1: Fair enough.
0: But why were they building a U.S. consulate there? Factor number two. Perry. Perry who? Who's Perry?
1: Frankly, all I know is it that, that meme, Andre at the gate, let me in, in. Americans to Japan. <laughs> pretty much. The
0: year prior to all the terrible earthquakes, Commodore Matthew C. Perry had a four-ship squadron appear in Edo Bay in July of 1853, and the Shogunate was thrown into complete turmoil. Commodore Perry was fully prepared for hostilities if his negotiations with the Japanese failed and threatened to open fire if the Japanese refused to negotiate. He gave them two white... (laughs) Either way, you're getting shot. Pretty much. To demonstrate his weapons, Perry ordered his ships to attack several buildings around the harbor. I believe you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The thing about the Edo period is Japan was closed to outsiders, had very limited trade. There was trade, but it was limited. People weren't allowed in. You couldn't have ports. And because of that, on one hand, isolationist policy is never always like the best thing. But there was also a very good reason why they did not want to go and have frickin' Americans or any Europeans, any colon, potential colonizers showing up. Well, and that's something that's talked about in this book,
1: which is, well, you know what the British did in China. She's totally ignorant of Mm. it. Well, we know. Which is? The Opium Wars, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I just always think it's very funny when a country that is so hardcore isolationism, i.e. America, all of a sudden is just like, knock, knock to everybody else. But then anybody else who says like, hey, America, do you... No, no, I take my toys and I go home.
0: Exactly. I'm just saying. The American fleet returned in 1854. The chairman of the senior counselors, Abe Mashiro, was responsible for dealing with the Americans. Having no precedent to manage this threat to national security, Abe tried to balance the desires of the senior counselors to compromise with the foreigners, of the emperor who wanted to keep the foreigners out, and of the feudal Daimos rulers who wanted to go to war. Lacking consensus, Abe compromised by accepting Perry's demands for opening Japan to foreign trade while also making military preparations. In March 1854, the Treaty of Peace and Amity, or the Treaty of Kanagawa, maintained the prohibition on trade, but opened the ports of Shimoto and the Hakodat to American whaling ships seeking provisions, guaranteed good treatment to shipwrecked American sailors, and allowed a United States consul to take up residence in Shimoto, a seaport on the Izu Peninsula southwest of Ido. See, because Japan is
1: like a bunch of different islands, I literally would just pick a tiny little island away from my actual main stuff and just say, that's Japan.
0: I mean, go to that one. I mean, mean, we're not going to go and talk about like Okinawa at this point, but like. U.S. military occupation everywhere, and U.S. military imperialism everywhere, and it's let's just go and have as many ports and spots here and everywhere, because we're America, we get to be everywhere we want to. Just
1: Google U.S. military outposts, and just be a little scared.
0: Yeah. That's all. Yeah, just a bit. Anyways, but following the nomination of Townsend Harris as the U.S. consul in 1856, there were two years of negotiations. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce was signed in 1858 and put into application from mid-1859. During the negotiations, Harris, so this is a treaty that's mentioned in the book, basically he convinced the Japanese negotiators to sign a treaty on the basis it was the best possible terms a Western power would offer.
1: Mm. Mm. Is it though? Exactly. I mean, like, can I see France and Britain's and everybody else's first?
0: Well, let's just do a (laughs) side-by-side. So here are the main highlights of the treaty. So there was going to be an exchange of diplomatic agents. Okay. Ito, Kobe, Nagasaki, Nagata, and Yokohama's opening to foreign trade as ports. The ability of United States citizens to live and trade at will in those ports. Uh, no. Only opium trade was prohibited. For now, for now. A system of extraterritoriality that was provided for the subjugation of foreign residents to the laws of their own consular courts instead of the Japanese law system. No, no, no. I am not having
1: a bunch of Americans show up, get drunk on sake, ruin stuff, and then my police can't beat the shit out of them. Yeah. No way.
0: Fix low import export duties subject to international control. Ability for Japan to purchase American shipping and weapons. And Japan was also forced to apply any further conditions granted to other foreign nations in the future to the United States under the most favored nation provision.
1: Uh, no.
0: Yeah. To your question of, well, what about the other people? Well, several foreign nations soon followed and obtained treaties with Japan. The Anse-Five Power Treaties of the United States, a.k.a. the Harris Treaty. The Netherlands Treaty of Amity and Commerce between the Netherlands and Japan on August 18th. Russia Treaty of Amity and Commerce between Russia and Japan on August 19th. The United Kingdom, the Anglo-Japanese Treaty of Amity and Commerce on August 26th, and France, Treaty of Amity and Commerce between France and Japan on October 9th. Very short period of time, suddenly it's boom, 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 boom. Yeah, the floodgate. Literally Literally like a tsunami. Oh my god. Basically, Japan was open for business now. Oh no. Yeah. And at this point, shortly afterwards, the shogunate finally just implodes, and we have the Meiji Restoration. In this, the emperor has the real power again. That power is now centralized and consolidated. There's then mass industrialization with this opening to trade. There's also the standardizing of language at this point. And again, more foreign trade and more foreign influence and, 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 and. If I was the emperor as a
1: shogunate puppet person, now I feel like I'm just going to be foreign people invading my country puppet person.
0: And can you kind of see how I want to bring this all back now to close with Princess Mako? Because again, we go and we see how the imposition by a foreign power, which I'm not trying to go and be like, oh, like poor Japan. Like, no, like Japan did horrible stuff in like World War Two, and there needed to go and be consequences. We do not need to. However, we can go and see where again, because of foreign interference, and then also unequal application of apparently like these new quote-unquote like democratic values can values ever be democratic when they are being imposed by force kind of feels like an oxymoron just a little bit and there
1: is something like you were saying how can you achieve true democracy if it's not applicable to everybody in these circumstances and there is that whole thing too of propping up or keeping up quote-unquote these traditions but these traditions are mm-hmm. almost construction at this point. So are they really quote-unquote authentic?
0: Even if they were quote-unquote authentic, do we need to go and keep on upholding a bullshit standard?
1: Yeah. Tradition for the sake of tradition, when not actually looking at how it's impacting and affecting real-life people, mm-hmm. kind of defeats the purpose of what traditions are supposed to do, which is a touchstone that brings people together.
0: Exactly. With Kazunomiya, and then Princess Mako, and then... The current Empress Masada. And it's like pain and suffering that these women have to go through. Because again, we need to go and put men's lives and men's bodies as greater importance and have greater value always. She can't go and elevate her husband. He will go and drag her down because he will fundamentally really rule over her because he takes precedent.
1: Yeah. She's a poet. She wrote poetry, and they actually included one of her poems in here Uh that she wrote as she was on her trip traveling from her home city to go to her marriage city. It's very emblematic of all these women. Do you want to read it? Leaving the city of my birth after many days, I hurriedly approach this journey to the east. I know what it's like for the flow of pure water that will never again return to its source. The falling leaves of autumn make the body yearn for the past. So it's very much like all those ladies. They're just sort of being pushed and pulled. And what do they have to give up in terms of their own identity and agency?
0: Yeah. Who do you have to go and become because of other forces that's beyond you? It's tough to be a princess. It sucks to be a princess. Amen. Follow us for more research, fun facts, soundtracks, and aesthetic posts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter at Royal Diaries Pod.